The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. There's a problem here in this passage, and the problem is familiarity. The problem is, is that Jesus is left from where he was, and he goes to a familiar place. He goes to his, his hometown. He's, he's here in Nazareth. This is where he's from. So a lot of times we, we kind of dehumanize the one who became human for us. Jesus, how many of you know that Jesus is fully God, but he was fully man? And so Jesus was born. Jesus lived as a child. He lived as a teenager. He lived as a young adult. He died a uh, 33-year-old young man. But sometimes we see Jesus in kind of the cultural presentations or the religious presentations of Jesus, and we think, of course, people knew that he was Jesus or they knew that he was the Son of God because his name's Jesus. And so Jesus is, is enough to tell us, you know, who he is. But I want you to think with me, the name Jesus really didn't have a whole lot of significance in Jesus' day. It was a common name. It would be like saying Joe. You know, it, it was a name that meant something. It had depth to it like Yeshua, Jehovah is my salvation. But, you know, Joshua had the same name and others in Jesus' day would have had that same name. So it wasn't a, an identifiable mark. As a matter of fact, it would have been something that would have been familiar or common. Uh, can I remind you that the prophecies concerning Jesus was that he would be common, that Jesus would be like the commoners, that he would be among them, that he would come from them, that he would be rejected by them, uh, that Jesus would not uh, kind of have anything significant about his birth in a sense of where he came from, the town he came from, that was going to project him into this position where people just automatically believed that he was the Christ because of that background. And uh, when we come into this text, the thing that Jesus marvels at in verse number 6 is the same is the opposite to which he marvels at in, in another passage of Scripture. The one place other than this that Jesus marvels is he marvels at a Gentile's faith. He says he hadn't seen faith, not, not such great faith, no, not in Israel. And Jesus marveled at great faith. This is the second and only other place where the Bible says Jesus marveled at something. And this was a place where Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. In other words, Jesus was there, and they should have believed. There was enough evidence to present or for them to understand, but there was a marveling that Jesus had because of their unbelief. And uh, here, Jesus is in his own town. He's with his own people. And Jesus articulates something to us that's familiar to us. In verse number 4, he says, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And how many are familiar with that is uh, sometimes your family can be the most humbling people in your lives. <laughs> they can be the people that kind of keep you, or how many know that family members like to take us down a notch a little bit every once in a while, you know? And, uh, you know, family members tend to humble us uh, more than they honor us. Uh, they, they sometimes create difficulty for us. Uh, and in Jesus' life, there was no difference uh, as we see, Jesus had fleshly brothers and sisters who are mentioned here. Are these not his sisters? And are, is he not the brother of these, these, these men? And uh, they're mentioned as not believing in Jesus. What we know historically about this text is that many of Jesus' fleshly brothers and sisters didn't even believe on him. And that also, uh, there were a few that did. And uh, so we understand that that wasn't even until after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension that they believed. And so there was salvation that did come to some of his earthly, fleshly brothers and sisters. Uh, but there's some things about faith that I believe that Jesus wants to teach us. 
And there's some fallacies first that I want to deal with. And so uh, the first section that we'll look at, there's two sections I want to break this down into. The first one is the fallacies of faith. The, the, the fallacies of faith. These are some things that people tend to believe about faith that just aren't true that God reveals to us in the text. Can I say this number one underneath the fallacies of faith? Familiarity does not produce faith. Familiarity does not produce faith. In other words, what's, what's happening here? Well, they thought they knew Jesus, didn't they? They thought they knew Jesus. They, their description of Jesus thought that they had a full and complete understanding of who Jesus was, and their knowledge of Jesus actually worked towards a lack of faith, not towards faith. Their knowledge of Jesus, their familiarity with Jesus, didn't actually bring faith to them. It actually uh, made them critics. It, it made them unbelievers rather than believers. Their knowledge, uh, their familiarity didn't produce faith because here's the truth. Familiarity with something doesn't produce faith. That's a fallacy. Sometimes people think, well, you know, if I just become more familiar or close to religious things, maybe then I'll believe. It's sometimes what people do. That's why sometimes people start coming to church. They say, well, if I just get around it a little bit more and become more familiar with it, then I may, maybe I'll believe. Maybe, maybe that'll produce faith in my life. And, and while it can encourage faith, it can also have the, the, the opposite effect. It can, it can produce an unbelief in our life. Notice what they called him in their familiarity. They called him a carpenter. Why? Because that's what they believed who Jesus was. They already had a preconceived notion about who Jesus was before Jesus came. And so when Jesus showed up and he said things that astonished them, and he, they heard about things he did that astonished them, it didn't change their opinion of him because they already had a closed mind to their opinion of Jesus. They already believed him to be a carpenter. They believed him to be the one that grew up in Nazareth that just was a woodworker. You think about Nazareth, you think about what is said of Nazareth in other parts of Scripture, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not a place that was known or renowned for people that did great things. Nazareth was known for common people or people that just kind of, you know, they were kind of low. The bar was set very low for people that came out of Nazareth. As a matter of fact, it would have been like a community that said, if you're from this area, you're probably not going to amount to much. Some of you, you grew up in similar areas. You grew up in a neighborhood or maybe in a community where somebody said, because you're from there, you really nothing, nothing is going to happen in your life. Because you're from this area or because you're from this kind of uh, uh, group of people or because you're from this kind of community, that you can only have limitations on the amount of things that can be done in your life. And we understand that in our own social circles. Is there's communities that people come from and people just say, well, that can't be a significant person. That can't be a unique person because of where they're from. And so they were prejudging Jesus based on their own envy, really. They thought, we're from here. He's from here. Nothing's happening significant in our life. We're not unique. We're not special. So therefore, Jesus can't be either because this is where we're from and this is where he's from. So a lot of times that's what happens. And notice not only was there the, the kind of the jab at his commonness, but there was a jab at his origin. There was an attack on where he came from as far as his birth. Notice what they call him in the text. They call him not just a carpenter, but what's the second thing they call him here? The son of Mary. The son of Mary, not the son of Joseph. They didn't identify him with a father. They identified him with a mother so as to say almost like, we don't know who your father is. So as to kind of say, hey, we're so familiar with Jesus, we know the backstory about his life. We know that Jesus' mother 
conceived him before she was married. See, only people that were familiar with Jesus' family would have known that. They would have, listen, there were other people that kind of hinted to it, that kind of heard the story because, you know, how many know that when someone becomes popular, the scandals start getting written about them, about their backgrounds, about their origins, you know, people start to dig the dirt to kind of try to bring that person down once there's some renowned about them. There must be something, because in my mind, I got to bring that person down. If somebody's raising them up, I got to bring them back down to my level. They, 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 they've got to be ununique. They've got to, and so this is kind of what they were doing with Jesus, and whether or not they were taking a jab at his illegitimacy, as a child, uh, they were at least not identifying him with a father. Usually in, in Jesus' day, when you said somebody, you identified them by their father, not by their mother. And they're almost, by the way, um, you know, can you remember the Pharisees when they said to Jesus, we, we be not born of fornication? What were they saying about Jesus? Well, we weren't born from fornication like you were. They were kind of, again, this, maybe this story uh, had leaked out even to the point of, hey, can you think of the Pharisees trying to dig up dirt on Jesus? You know, uh, they, they probably sent some of the, you know, the tabloid newspapers of their day. You know, they found some people to find, uh, dig up some dirt to find some stories about Jesus that perhaps would make him an illegitimate prophet or make him an illegitimate leader. And to them, you know, they looked at Jesus and they said, well, this is a carpenter. This is the son of Mary. I mean, and then he go, they go a little further with their familiarity. Did they know also his family? Well, aren't these the sisters that are here with us? I mean, they're here with us. They're, they're with us. He's not with us anymore. But they're with us. And so their familiarity did not produce faith because that's a fallacy of faith. Familiarity doesn't produce faith. Uh, can I say this? When you expect your familiarity with Jesus to produce faith in Jesus, he will become a stumbling block to you rather than a savior. Because this is what happened. Notice what at the end of their titles about Jesus, what they said. And he offend, they became offended at him. In other words, that word offense is the same word we find uh, later on in Scripture where the Bible talks about Jesus being a foundational rock or a stumbling stone of offense. That's what the Bible's talking about. They were offended at him in, in that they tripped over him. He, they were offended at him. They were offended by him. They were offended by his whole uh, 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 reputation that was being created outside of Nazareth because outside of Nazareth, Jesus had done mighty things. Outside of Nazareth, Jesus was becoming and gaining in popularity. Outside of I mean, think about it. Jesus comes back to Nazareth, and the Bible tells us his disciples are following him. He's coming back to his hometown. He's got a He's got a posse. He's got a following. He's got people that are coming after him. I mean, they're, they're looking at him, and they're following him, and, and people outside are saying, okay, he's gaining a following, but we're not following him. We know who he is. We understand who he is. I think about when Jesus asked Peter who people were saying he was. When you, when you remember that, didn't people have a lot of opinions about who Jesus was that were wrong? Their familiarity with Jesus didn't produce faith in their lives, and, and by the way, neither it will in your life. Sometimes people think, because I'm familiar with Jesus, I must therefore have faith in Jesus. No, familiarity in Jesus does not produce faith in your life. That's not where faith comes from. It's not the production of faith. Uh, you cannot bind God to your understanding of him. Faith produces a greater understanding than you would ever attain through logic or education. Um, back in uh, 2 BC, there's an old maxim that goes this, and many of you have heard this. Familiarity breeds what? You know what? Familiarity breeds what? Contempt. It comes 
way back in 2 BC, there's writings that, of that. Aesop and his fables built on that. Uh, he talks about a fox had never seen a lion, and when he first met the king of beasts, the fox was frightened to death. And at their second meeting, the fox was not frightened quite as much. And the third time he met the lion, the fox went up and chatted with him. And, and, and so Aesop concluded this, that familiarity makes even the most frightening things seem quite harmless. Isn't that what happens when we become familiar with something? The things that perhaps frightened us, the things that perhaps made us in awe or stood out to us, they become harmless to us. They become things that we don't so much honor or care for anymore. Um, Have you ever seen that happen with your familiarity with God's Word? Or your familiarity with church? Why is it sometimes that these kind of settings... And I was speaking just recently to a group of pastors about this, and I said, it's interesting because... The hardship that I find in communication to the church is usually with people that are familiar with this setting. It's not usually with people that are unfamiliar with it. It's usually with people that are familiar with it. Because you've been here before, because this is a familiar, comfortable setting for you, you have a tendency to respond in the very same way you always respond because that is your predetermined response. Your familiarity is not increasing faith in God. Sometimes it becomes a hindrance to your faith. Because you've already been here. Isn't it interesting? Uh, It's kind of like, for me, I like to watch people and study people. It's interesting to me that, you know, the people in the church tend to sit in the same places. They tend to, the ones that go forward in an invitation, go forward. The ones that don't, don't. It's not like what they heard moved them one way or another. It was that, that that's just their behavior because it's familiar to them. They just do the same thing every single time. And, you know, that's much who we are when we become familiar to these settings. And where I find as a pastor a hardship in communicating the Bible is with people that are just comfortable in this setting and they already have shut off what I'm saying because they're familiar with it. They know they have to endure the message to the end. You know, they know what's coming. You know, they know that eventually there's going to be, you know, a last point and then there's going to be a prayer and there's going to be a close. It's interesting when you pray in a setting like this with people that are familiar. What do people tend to do during the prayer, people that are familiar with the setting? close their Bibles, pack their purses, put their coats on, prepare to leave during the prayer because that's kind of like what you do. It's interesting, like during the offering time, everybody just starts having a conversation in the middle of the service. The people that are not familiar with the setting, they sit there aghast watching people behave that way in the service because they're like, what are you doing during the part that you're you're being a disruption? You're talking during the service. But people that are familiar with the setting, they have no problem with being disrupting to the situation. You know, get up and whenever you want to get up, leave whenever you want to leave, talk whenever you want to talk, be, you know, kind of do whatever. You're comfortable in the situation. And, and what I find is it's so hard to communicate to people who are familiar with the setting. And while familiarity with this is a good thing, I think also it becomes a hurdle to the communication because you are used to hearing messages. You're used to it. I don't know that there's anything that I could unpack to you that you haven't heard before. I mean, for some, this is new to you, but for others, you've heard so many messages before in your life, you actually know how to tune it out. You're you're familiar with that process. You know how to shut it off, to tune it out, and to just do things that, you know, keep your mind busy long enough for you. I mean, come on. You know what I'm talking about. Even now, some of you, while I'm talking about not paying attention, you're struggling to pay attention. You know, it's, it's interesting when we, when we get in these settings how we're so not impacted by. Can you remember the first time you sat in a church service? 
Can you remember the first time you heard the gospel? Can you remember some of the impact that these things had on your life because perhaps they were new and fresh and different? It's interesting because sometimes we have to change the settings up. We have to change where we meet. We have to change where we sit. We have to change what we do or the orders for people to start to notice that something is different so that they'll pay attention again. And everybody knows this. Marketers know this. You know, advertisers know this. You can't keep doing the same thing to keep people's attention. And in the church, if we change anything, we've, we've, we've introduced some sort of compromise if the service order changes. And it's interesting if, you know, the offering is not in the center, but it's at the end. People go, what in the world? What's going on here? Can you imagine if you came into the service and we started with the message? Well, first, some of you would miss the first half because you wouldn't be here because you usually just skip the music. Or there's parts of service where we just say, well, it's not important. Because we're familiar, it breeds contempt in our life. But the truth is, I think there's a deeper saying. I think this maxim goes deeper. Philip Brooks said it best, I believe. He says this, familiarity breeds contempt only with contemptible things among contemptible people. Familiarity breeds contempt only with contemptible things among contemptible people. In other words, when I already have contempt in my heart, that which I become familiar with just becomes more contemptible to me. If, if it wasn't that way, then everybody that was married for longer than a certain period of time would be contemptuous at one another. Uh, hopefully that's not the way that works. If I don't have contempt in my heart, again, talking about communication, one thing I understand is if you reject me as a person, as a pastor, if you reject me, if you have contempt in your heart towards me, that doesn't matter what I say to you. It really doesn't. That's why I understand why any pastor understands that someone who is a critic of the church is not going to be someone who connects to the message. Because when I come in and I'm already contemptuous in my heart towards the communicator, it doesn't matter what the person says, I don't hear it. Because I need to accept the person before I accept the message. You with me? And that's what it was with Jesus. Isn't this the truth? If you reject Jesus, you cannot hear his words. If you have contempt towards Christ or towards the church, if the contempt is there already, you're not going to hear anything, no matter if it's truth or not. And some people, they have contempt in their heart. It's built up from error. Perhaps you've had religion in the past that has taught you erroneously, and so because of that, you have contempt towards the church, and you have a lack of trust or a shortness in trust into people who are spiritual leaders, and so you kind of have an abusive kind of knee-jerk reaction when it comes to that. And by the way, that's okay, but can I say this? Don't let that hinder you from hearing the truth. Because the truth is the truth, no matter whether I hear it or not. This is the truth. Jesus was who he was, whether they rejected him or received him. It did not change who he was. Some received him, some rejected him, but it didn't change the truth. And that's what it is when it comes to familiarity. Let me say number two, sight and understanding don't produce faith either. This is a fallacy. Sight and understanding don't produce faith. Let me just kind of lay that out because here they're saying, We heard of the mighty things that you've done, but notice Jesus did no mighty things before them. Why did Jesus do no mighty things before them? Well, the Bible says in verse 5, he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And the inference here 
is that he could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. That faith is an element that brings the miraculous. Or, how about this? That God reveals himself to those who don't reject him. If I reject him, he never will be revealed to me. I cannot see because the purpose of the miracles was not to provide a platform for Christ to be honored or for people necessarily just to worship. The purpose of the miracles were to reveal or to undergird what the people already believed about him. If you think about who Jesus did the miracles to or for, in most of the cases, I would say probably in all of the cases, these were people that had faith in their heart when it came to Jesus. Think about even the last passage. Jairus believed that Jesus could heal his daughter before he asked Jesus to do it. The woman who had the issue of blood believed that Jesus could heal her just by touching his garment before she ever went to do it. She had faith in who Jesus was. She may not fully understood that faith. She may not fully understood who he was. She may not fully understood the impact that that faith would have on her, but she did not reject him. She was willing to receive who he was. And from that, she got, again, as we looked at last week, when you go to Jesus for help, you get far, far more from him than you ever believed could happen. And what Jesus showed to her, didn't Jesus reveal more to her than just a healing in the body? He revealed to her that it was not her superstition in his garment, but it was her faith in him that had made her whole. She didn't even know that. Jesus knew her heart. Jesus saw the faith that was there. She didn't even recognize the, own, the faith that she had. It was somewhat superstitious. If I touched the hem of his garment as if the hem of his garment had a power to heal, but Jesus said, no, 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 thy faith hath made thee whole. Thy faith hath made thee whole. That was, that was the problem. And listen, here, there was no faith here. And notice, sight and understanding would not bring about faith. This is the same context to people that say this. Stay with me. If God would just show himself to me, I would believe. No, you would not. Because he has already shown himself to us. He already has come to the earth. He already has lived a sinless life. He already has left the body of that evidence behind. And it doesn't matter if you saw it in person, you still would. If you're a rejecter now, you would have been a rejecter then. I mean, that's in essence what, I mean, the rich man in hell says, send somebody to my, send, send Lazarus back from the dead, right? Because then my brothers will believe. No, no, no. If your brothers don't believe already, if they don't believe because of the body of evidence that's there, they don't believe the word of God, Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe that, they won't believe as though one appeared to them and came back from the dead. Are there not rejectors of Jesus even though Jesus came back from the dead? If I'm approaching Christ with, he's a fraud. I'm approaching Christ with, he's a failure. I'm approaching Christ with, he's a fable. If, if that's the way I approach Christ, guess, guess what? I'm not going to see any mighty work. Not because God is not able to do it, but because that is not what produces faith. That is not what brings faith about in the heart. God, if God wrote, I'm God, in the sky, people would, would, would come up with a way to call that not real. 
to call that fake. And, and by the way, they do it all the time. Don't the heavens declare the glory of God? Doesn't the firmament show his handiwork? Can't you look at God's creation and see his signature and see his design? And yet, what do people do? That's an accident. That's an accident. That's not real. That's, explain it away. Why? Because a rejection of God, even if I see it with my eyes, that's why as Christians we walk by faith and not by sight. That's what Bible tells us. Why? Because sight is what causes foolishness in our lives. It's what causes failure in our lives. But it never produces faith and it doesn't bring understanding. As a matter of fact, what we understand about the people who rejected Christ, when he spoke in parables, it didn't reveal anything to them. As a matter of fact, it hid it from them. Isn't it interesting that that which could could unlock something for someone, like when we read the parables of Jesus as believers, don't they unlock truths for us? But when they read the parable, when they heard the parables, by the way, can I, can, let's unpack this properly. When they heard the parables directly from the word of God made flesh, as he stood before them and spoke them, they didn't reveal anything to them. They hid things from them. Why? Because of their unbelief. Because of their lack of faith. Because of the hardness of their heart. Because of their predisposed condition. Why? Because men are not good. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. When God changed, if you're a Christian, when God changed your life, he didn't turn over a new leaf. He didn't make you a better you. He resurrected you. You were dead. He took that which was dead and made it alive. If we're just talking about behavioral modification, we're not talking about salvation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is not talking about some kind of conforming to religion. He's talking about transformation through Christ, resurrection. That's what Jesus brings to a life. He brings understanding where there was none. He gives sight where there was blindness. Hmm. What does faith do for us? Now, faith is the what? The substance of things hoped for. It is the what? Evidence of things not seen. Isn't it interesting that what a rejecter calls blind, God calls evidence. But to a rejecter, evidence is blindness. To to a detractor, to a critic, sight and understanding don't produce faith. And then lastly, on, on, on the fallacies, family connections don't produce faith. Family connections don't produce faith. This may be you. You may say, I didn't grow up being taught these things or my parents weren't very religious. If I had that kind of family, maybe then I'd believe. I'm a Christian because my family is Christian. God's word says no. The the Bible actually tells us that it's not of the will of man, that it's not of blood, that it's not of the flesh, that it doesn't come from family. You cannot be born into a family physically and become a Christian. Interesting when people say, I'm Catholic, or they say whatever they say that they are. The reason why they say that is because that's what they were born. They were born into a family who had a religion, and that therefore became their religion and their identity. Not because of faith, but because of birth. Because of the way they were raised. Because of their familiarity with something. Because of what they were taught in. And by the way, they're taught from the very beginning of that, not to question any of it, but just to accept it. 
And they're taught that that's faith. Because you should just accept everything, whether or not in the face of truth, it, 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 counter, counter, uh, it contradicts that or tells you something different. Faith without works is dead, the Bible tells us. But when we think about a faith that's produced by works, that is also dead. In other words, I don't have faith because of my works. I work because of my faith. Faith in my heart produces works in my life. It's not the other way around. And if you're in a system of religion that tells you you are working your way to God through your inherent goodness and your ability to keep some commandments and laws and church polity, that if you can become a good person through doing good things, that therefore you receive salvation or merit from God, that's not true. That, that's counter to what God promises and propagates in the gospel, what he tells us in the gospel. And by the way, any form of that, because there are several perversions of that, that also attest to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died, he was buried, and rose again. But can I say this? Jesus plus anything equals failure, not faith, because it's just Jesus. If you add to it, you pollute it. I cannot add my works to Jesus' work and think that that becomes better work. I must receive his work and the completion of it and the entirety of it and the foundation of it and just say, apart from me, his work is enough. And my work, when compared to his work, falls massively short. And by the way, there's a lot of denominational uh, 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 perversions of the gospel. Yes, it's this, but also you need to accept this church polity or this church covenant or this church baptism. You need to add these things to it. Show me in the Bible. It's not in there. And by the way, we excuse it because we grew up with it. Well, it, it, it's, not, it's not so bad because people accept it. Listen, I don't care at what level people accept the lie. It doesn't produce faith. If I accept the lie at any level, it produces failure. It produces a lack of faith. And, and family connections don't produce faith. I'm not a Christian because my parents were Christians. I'm a Christian in spite of that. I, I'm thankful for the heritage, but I don't worship the heritage because the reason why I grew up in a Christian home was because of the grace of God. That's God's grace. But that didn't save me. I had to receive that grace myself. I, it had to impact me. I needed to believe on Jesus myself. And if you don't believe on Jesus, if your belief in Jesus is, is somehow coming after what you were taught as a child in your religion, and Jesus comes after that, then we have a problem. Because that needs to be removed. It needs to be what the Bible says, repented of. Here's the truth. If you're going to come to God, you need to repent of the error that you've been taught. I cannot just add, listen, there are many, many, many uh, erroneous, even pagan worshiping, false idol worshiping uh, religions that will add Jesus to it. They'll, take, they'll adopt that belief system in and say, I can believe this too. 
it's not adding to what you believe. It's, it's rejecting all of those things. Jesus presented that truth when he talked about the new wine and the old bottles. What he was presenting to them would burst the bottles of the religion. It would break it down. It would completely obliterate it and destroy it because what he was presenting was not the same as what they grew up with. And this is where I'm talking about because there are many people who believe that they're born again because they're familiar with Jesus. Because I grew up, and you fill in the blank, with whatever denomination, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, friend. There are many Protestant denominations that don't preach the gospel, that preach a work salvation, that preach a church polity, that preach an undergirding uh, acceptance of some kind of covenant, except for what Jesus says. But except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Listen, now we understand why they were offended at him. Because this is what happens. I understand what I'm saying can be offensive. I understand that because the gospel offends us first, doesn't it? It offends us before it saves us. Because I must be willing to accept the offense of it. Because I have to understand that I'm offensive to God because of my sinful condition. And because of my sinful condition, Jesus Christ had to be brutally killed on a cross for my sin. That's offensive. Because I don't know anybody in the room that wants to say they were responsible for the bloody death of Jesus on the cross. But here's the thing. In order to come to God, you need to accept that. You you have to say that you were the reason why. That your sin, Jesus had to pay for. Because if you think he just paid for some universal sinfulness of mankind, but didn't pay for your sin, then you're not saved. You You need to admit that you are a sinner. Not that mankind needed a savior, but that you need a savior. Not that universally the church needed a savior, but that you individually need a savior. And that's, that's, that's where people in denominational hangups get messed up because they're okay with saying, yeah, 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 we're all sinners. Jesus died for all of us. No, no, no. You're a sinner and Jesus died for you. And until the moment becomes personal, it never becomes birth. You need to be born again. Personally. And salvation becomes offensive when it becomes personal because it is confrontational, isn't it? Why are you getting all confrontational about this? Why can't we just kind of have like a a feel-good message today? Because that's not the message in the Bible. the, The gospel first offends me. And if, listen, this is what happens. If I reject Jesus in the way that he's presented, not in the way that I think I know him, See, this is the problem with people they think they know Jesus. When you present the Jesus of the Bible to them, they reject him. Because he's not the one they're familiar with. If you want the Jesus that was presented to you through some kind of church polity or religion, and when the Jesus confronts that Jesus and is a different Jesus, that's why what I understand, when, people, when everyone that calls themselves a Christian says Jesus, they're not talking about the same person. When these people describe Jesus, does that sound like your Jesus? An un, a, a common carpenter, illegitimate son, ununique person. Or is he king of kings and lord of lords to you? Is he special to you? I mean, some people, they, they, this Jesus that is being presented to them, it, it's opposing to the Jesus that they already believe in. And here's the problem. 
you cannot already believe in this production of who Jesus is religiously and also believe in the real Jesus. You have to reject one or the other. And and it's hard for us because, as we see in the passage, family is the hurdle to it, isn't it? Because some of us are afraid what our cousins, what our aunt, what our uncle, what our mother, what our father, what our children are going to say if we reject our denominational connection. We're afraid of who we might, how we might be thrust out. And that shows you the divisive nature of religion. Because it only loves you as long as you love it. But here's the thing about Jesus. He loves you before you ever love him. He receives you before you ever receive him. He knows you before you know him. And as far as your salvation is concerned, he saved you. But you know, a lot of it is just getting over that hurdle, isn't it? And some of you that have come to Christ, you know the pain of being rejected by your family. Because when you receive Jesus as he is in Scripture, all of a sudden now you joined a cult because you believe in this Jesus that's presented by the Bible and not the Jesus that was presented by the church. And those are not the same people. One is manufactured, the other is God. They had a manufactured view of Jesus which hindered their ability to have faith. So familiarity doesn't produce faith. Sight and understanding doesn't produce. Family connections don't produce faith. My belief in or on Jesus doesn't change who he is, but it does change what I will see and understand about him. If my approach to Jesus is that he needs to somehow win me over, prove himself to me, or give me what I'm asking before I believe in him, then I'm not really wanting faith. I'm wanting God to give me an excuse to keep on trusting in myself. And he won't help me do that. He won't do mighty things before me because he won't help me continue to believe in the one I want to believe in. He came to rescue you and me from that false kind of faith. They had a false faith. Jesus just calls it unbelief. Now, let's look lastly, and we'll be done today. I'm sorry, I don't have a 5 o'clock message. I'm going to preach both of them today. Is that okay? The second one is, and this will be quick. Some of you grimaced, and some of you laughed, and some of you grimaced and laughed. The, The facts of faith. The facts of faith. We talked about the fallacies of faith. Let's talk about the facts. The facts of faith. Number one, faith is what pleases God. Faith is what pleases God. There is no getting away from that when you read the scriptures. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he that believeth that he is, he he believeth that God must believe that he is, and that he is a reward of them that diligently seek him. Faith is what pleases God. Faith is a pursuit. First it's God pursuing me, then it's me pursuing God. Did you get that? Faith is a pursuit. First, it's God pursuing me, and then it's me pursuing God. That's the correct response of God producing faith in my life. In other words, what does he do? First, he pursues me. We love him because he... Did you pursue him first, or did he pursue you first? He pursued you, fully and completely. He pursued you before you ever thought about him. He pursues you far beyond far before you ever pursue him. By the way, that's why you've gotten where you are. Some of you don't understand the reason why you're here right now is because of God's pursuit of you. 
Because he has put you in positions that, that pushed you to him. And you may have viewed those things to be unloving, but it is very much God's love. If God put you in a position where you were pleading for him, then he is, he is, you found grace in his sight. He, he, he is loving you because he's pushing you to him. There is no greater position of love than, than the father drawing us into himself, grabbing us and pulling us into himself. Think about how a father does that. Some of us, we didn't know earthly fathers that did this in our lives, and we long for this. We long for that human interaction of a father that will grab us and pull us into his arms and hold us. Because there's no greater sign of love than that. There's nothing more securing, more satisfying, more deep. And listen, even as I say it, I can see both satisfaction in the eyes of some that had this relationship and hurt in the eyes of those that didn't. But a father that will grab you and pull you in. It's amazing on how much that solves and how we respond to that human interaction of someone who's willing to let us close to them. I want to be close. God pulls us into himself. And what do we do? We respond in embracing, pursuing him, going after him. Listen, this is what God has done. Faith is what pleases God, but faith, number two, is produced through the word of God by the spirit of God. Faith is produced through the word of God by the Spirit of God. Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What does it do? Well, the word of God is what produces faith in the heart. But it produces in the faith of the heart of the the person that has a heart that's receptive to it. Isn't that interesting? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they be sent? But remember Jesus' parable of the soils. Some, the word is the same. The seed is the same. The sower is the same. What's different? The heart. The receptivity of the heart. Some falls on good ground. Some falls on stony ground. Listen, isn't it interesting how in a setting like this, and in settings greater than this, that the gospel can be preached and you will have both rejectors and receivers in the same room. Same message, same presentation, different response. What is the difference? The heart. The heart. The preparation of the heart. And who prepares the heart? He does. He's the preparer. He's the producer. He's the one. Hey, listen, we, we, we think of this because we say that the gift of God's eternal life is the word of God says. But can I remember, remind you what Ephesians 2 says is the gift of God. For by grace you save through faith and that not of yourselves, what is the gift of God? Faith. Faith is a gift of God. You had faith in something before you had faith in Christ. You received faith in Christ because of his work in your heart. Faith is produced by the word of God through the spirit of God. Why? Because only he can quicken. Only he can resurrect. Lazarus, come forth. Was it the words, the incantation of the way he said it? Could have anyone stepped up next to Jesus and said, Lazarus, come forth, in the same way that Jesus said it? Was it the incantation? Was it the spell? Was it the way he raised his hand? Could that have been reproduced? Or was it because only Jesus could call someone back from the dead? 
Only Jesus can do that. He is the one. So he is the one that calls us. He's the one that resurrects us. It is his work, and so we glory in him and not in ourselves. So it's produced by the word of God. It's through the spirit of God. That's what the gospel is powerful to do. It breaks up things, doesn't it? It's the power of God of salvation everyone that believe it. It's dynamite. It's transformative. Number three, faith is what precedes my understanding of God. Faith is what precedes my understanding of God. In other words, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I'm never going to have more faith, great faith, much faith, until I have faith. This may be you today. You might be saying, well, I'm waiting till my life gets straightened out before I believe in God. Your life will never get straightened out until you believe on Christ. It won't change a bit. You can try harder, but trying harder is not, what, is not how someone's saved. It's believing on Christ. When you believe on Christ, your life does change. But it starts with just a seed of faith, doesn't it? You're waiting for your faith to come to this large seen thing before you believe on Jesus. Here's the truth. Believe in what he's revealed to you. You say, what do you mean? Would you agree with me that there was enough revealed to those people in Nazareth about who Jesus was that they could have believed on him from the evidence presented there? Jesus marvels at their unbelief. There was enough there that they should have believed and therefore we understand and see that it's not produced by those things. It's produced by him. And there he is. There's unbelief. So there's no more revelation because there is no faith. Listen, Christian, maybe you've stagnated in your Christian life because you lack faith. It's the truth. The best way for God to teach you more from his word is for you to just believe on what he's already taught you. How many know that in the Christian life, the way to stagnate, the way to backslide, is to stop doing what he's shown you? If God's revealed something to you, you need to do it. You need to live it. This is what happens. Listen, why it goes back to the basics. You ever see someone with big problems and you ask them the question, are you, are you reading the Bible? Are you attending church? No. Why? Those are simple things that God's revealed to us. Has God told us to study his word? Is that black and white easy? Can we just make a statement? God says to read his word. God says to study his word. Does that apply to everyone? Does all, do all Christians do it the way they should? Does God tell us to gather together faithfully with the church? Does he tell us not to forsake doing that? Do Christians forsake it? Do they fall away from it? Does it become ordinary, familiar, mundane, and they just get bored with it? And they back away from it? What happens? Good things happen in those people's lives. They stop reading their Bible and praying. We teach the little kids, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Neglect your Bible, forget to pray, and you'll what? Shrink, shrink, shrink. What are we teaching them? We're teaching them a basic truth. This is Christianity 101. If you don't read your Bible and you don't come to church, 
You're not going to have some great truths revealed to you. You're not going to see some mighty miracles in your life. As a matter of fact, everything is just going to go the opposite way. It's going to get worse and worse. Nobody ever got better because they quit going to church. Nobody ever got better because they quit reading their Bible. And you know, Christians are whining, well, my relationships are bad, my marriage is bad, my kids are bad. Come to church every week with your family. Read the Bible every day with your family. Well, that won't work. Well, why don't you try it? Every single day, why don't you try it? It couldn't hurt, could it? It might save you the counseling fees. It might save you the divorce fees. It, it might save you uh, the, the, the psychology fees. It might save you. Hey, listen, if you just get underneath the preaching and teaching of God's word on a regular basis and around other believers on a regular basis, and we consider one another and provoke one another. Listen, I've not seen, listen, I understand the church is imperfect. I understand there's a lot of hypocrites. One's preaching to you this morning. But the truth is, listen, we're not looking for perfection in men. We have a perfect God and a perfect word, and God is made us perfect in him and that is a reason for us to gather and there's a problem when the church today thinks that there's other ways to get closer to God there are not other ways to get closer to God there's only the ways that he's given us and here's the truth if you don't do the basics you'll never see the miracles you won't because you cannot see more revelation while you reject the basic revelations he's given you You have to receive the basic ones. How many know there's some things that you need discernment for and wisdom for in your life that are not black and white in Scripture? Anybody know that? Anybody need wisdom for something that there's not a verse for? You know how you get that? You do everything that God's revealed to you that there is a verse for. And you do that faithfully. And guess what? You'll begin to see the miracles and have wisdom where you didn't have wisdom. Because wisdom is the principal thing. And when I do what God's word says, it's wise. And wisdom begets more wisdom. Truth begets more truth. Faith begets more faith. And revelation begets more revelation. The miraculous becomes more miraculous. And why the Christian life is stagnated, why church environment perhaps has become familiar. Listen, some of us, as we're finishing out the year, we just drug ourselves to church today. And I get it, the holiday slumps and all those things. And as a pastor, I feel it too. But here's the truth today. We have to get beyond that stuff and just say, what God tells us to do, we will continue to do. Because if we don't, we're not going to see any more miracles, church. And the key is, you say, well, the key can't be to, to... to to keep coming to church and read my Bible. Why don't you try? You say, well, we're here. Well, be here next week. Be here Wednesday. Keep coming. Keep coming. There's a key to that. You know, some of the old people that were in the church that just came to church every time the doors were open, they got it right. We may have received the wrong message because we're not the rule-oriented people, but I tell you, there are some things I can't just ignore in Scripture and have my life go good. By the way, there's nothing I can ignore that God says and have my life go good. Isn't it amazing that somehow we expect God's blessing while we disobey his word? Well, I want God to bless my finances. When's the last time you gave what you should in the offering plate? Are you someone in the church that can be, atten- uh, that, that can be counted on? Are you faithful? I want God to bless my relationships. What about your relationship with him? How's that? It starts in the simplest places. 
And that's what God is trying to say to us. Hey, listen, faith is what precedes my understanding of God. The more I do what God's word says, the more I understand who he is and what he wants to do in my life. You want a greater understanding this year of who God is? Do what you understand in God's word today. Make a decision about it and hold to it. And don't quit. I'm not talking about New Year's resolutions that you do for a couple weeks and quit. I'm talking about some of us may need to say today, I haven't been as faithful to the Word of God that I should, and you know what, I'm going to get into the Word of God, and I'm going to stay in God's Word. And if I, if I fail to do it one day, I'm going to get back up the next day, and I'm going to do it. Some of us just need to say, you know what, I'm going to go back to, you know, I used to come Sunday morning. Listen, you know how many pastors tell the tale of people that came Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, then they didn't come Wednesday night, then they didn't come Sunday night, and before long they didn't come Sundays, then it was every other Sunday, then it was once every Sunday, then it was eat Christmas and Easter, and then it's like, where are they? Any of those people do? I'm not getting fed. Well, duh. You're not coming to the table. And before you ever got to that place, you came to the table with a predisposed condition of not eating. I'm not hungry because I'm full of junk. We spoil our dinner, and then we complain why it's not good for us. Listen, some of us, we need to come out from some of the things that we've allowed into our lives. Come on, how many, how many feel the, the, uh, the physical junk that you've put in your body? How many are feeling that from the holidays? Some of you are struggling to keep your eyes open because of all that sugar. Here's the truth. How many know that the spiritual junk that you're allowing into your life also has an equally numbing, slowing, backsliding effect? And a hurt to the church. And honestly, this wasn't even my message. It's not even my points. And I should, should have been done 10 minutes ago, Pastor. I get it. But where did we lose our hunger for God's word, church? Where did we lose our hunger and thirst for God? The one that at first we were so in love with enamored with, enthralled by. that There was nothing that he would say that we wouldn't do. And all of a sudden now it becomes a negotiation constantly. God's word says this, well, I'm negotiating with it. And what does it do? It produces lazy Christians. And you know what I'll tell you? Lazy Christians don't turn the world upside down. And listen, lazy leadership is just as bad. I don't care whether you're a staff member in the church or you're a volunteer or whether you're a member of the church or you just loosely associate yourself with the church. I'm saying wherever you are in your progression, you're going to get what you give. And when we come with open hands and hungry hearts for God and we hunger and thirst after God, it's amazing to see what God will do. We don't have this predisposed, well, I'm not a go-forward person at the invitation. Why are you predetermining whether or not God's going to work in your life before the service even starts? What if God says he wants to work? Are you willing to allow him? Are you willing to allow him to shake you? To grow your faith? Can you imagine the disciples watching this? These are disciples who have given their lives to following Jesus, watching his own family members and friends reject him. must have been amazing. What in the world is going on? Why we understand now how a prophet has no respect in his own country. It's so difficult for us sometimes when we're so familiar with it, isn't it? And lastly, this is a big point. Faith is published by obedience. Faith is published by obedience. You say, I have faith. Well, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. 
most powerful testimony is a Christian living the word, not just speaking the word. Christians, when are we going to get away from beating our culture with the word of God, just bludging it? The best way that we can have an effect on our culture, our homes, and our families is just by living out what the word says. Letting it have effect. Because what I believe is what I'm acting on. Listen, I understand some just turned this off. I'm okay. I'm not talking to you anyway. The truth is, is what I truly do believe has rooted somewhere in my heart and had an effect. And if you say you believed on Christ and you've been born again, but there's been no effect in your life, then maybe you're with that crowd that's just familiar with Jesus and you've truly rejected who he truly is for who you think he is and what you think he's bringing to you, what you think he should do. It's amazing what Christ can do in our lives when we just believe him. We just believe him. God, I believe. What does he say earlier on in Mark? Repent and believe the gospel. That's what he tells him. Repent and believe the gospel. I wonder, is there some things today that you need to repent of? If there is, it's not because I said it, it's because the Holy Spirit brought it to your heart. If there's something in your life that the Holy Spirit put a finger on, you know what you need to do? Repent of it. You know what that means? Turn away from it. Not just confess it and go back to it. Turn away from it. Turn it off in your life. Cut off the areas of your access to it. That's what it means to repent of something. I'm turned away from it completely. I'm disconnected from it. I'm not intending to go back to it, and I'm not putting myself in a position where I'm facing it. Isn't that interesting? Repent means to turn away from. It means I'm not in a position where I'm facing it anymore. Some of us, we confess and we continue to face it. We never turn from it. Turning from it keeps me away from it because I no longer have access to it because I'm no longer facing it. Now I'm facing God. And when I'm facing God, how many know when you see God, it's far more attractive? It's far more compelling. It's far more overwhelming than what you're facing before. He's far more beautiful and lovely. Listen, maybe that's what we need today, church. Maybe we just need a fresh glimpse of God. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.